Welcome back to another episode of State of the Art. I'm your host, Gabe B.C., and for those of you just joining us for the first time, this is a podcast about the intersection of art and technology. Each week, I'll be having a conversation with another artist, curator, inventor, robot, museum specialist, or CEO about how creative people are working with tech. If you have a suggestion for a guest or a topic that you'd like to hear more about, feel free to send me an email at gabe at thestateoftheart.org. All right, let's get this week's episode started off. I'm super excited today for my guest. Uh, She is an artist and designer who has turned into a humanitarian technologist, and we'll talk more about what that means in a second. Uh, Her name is Benedetta Piantella. She has built partnerships with organizations such as the UN, UNICEF, the Millennium Villages Project, and works at universities such as NYU, Columbia, and Princeton. She's deployed projects in countries such as Uganda, Kenya, Mali, and Tanzania. Benedetta, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. So how do you define what you do? Like, what's your title? You seem like you do a bunch of different things. Um, yeah, I think that's a, always a really hard question. Um, I would say that I wear a bunch of different hats. And so I have kind of the educator title. Um, and then I think I loosely use humanitarian designer sometimes as a way to define the type of actual like design practice and projects that I do. And what is a humanitarian designer? Um, I don't even know. (laughs) (laughs) I think my my, the, the way I try to kind of put these two things together is just sort of keeping design in, um, the space of social innovation. And so thinking about um, actually using design research and making, um, but towards um, sort of a social goal. And how did you get started with this? I mean, like, what was the inspiration for working as a humanitarian Um, So I come from an art background. Mm -hmm. So um, a lot of my original practice was uh, around creative, interactive um, experiences for people, um, specifically focused on topics such as exile and identity. Um, And I got really into electronics at the time um, and wanting to sort of leverage sensors and reactive environments to really really make like the experience um, much more interesting and in-depth. And then... um, Were these like homemade sensors or were you buying stuff off the shelf? So when I first started, um, there was no Arduino. And so... um, What's what's Arduino for people that don't know? (laughs) So there was no like easy open source kind of platform for electronic prototyping. Um, There was actually extremely proprietary environment. And, um, you know, one software was Maximus P, which is used widely today, but it was uh, still kind of at the very early stages. And so there was very few hardware options that could communicate with um, the actual software to make things um, interact. Um, And that led me to a class called um, Electronics for Artists, which actually sort of was meant to teach you from the ground up how to actually build your own um, electronics and devices. Hmm. Um, And so that was the end of my undergrad. And I realized that that's really what I wanted to do more of. And so um, I decided to go back to school um, as a graduate student to really sort of um, deep like really deep dive into the technology and the tools and, and the, specifically the hardware. And at the time you wanted to do it for art though. You were yeah. you were becoming an artist. Yeah. And so at the time it was 
purely for, again, for expression and to sort of um, create um, these experiences for people um, about sort of more meaningful uh, topics. Um, but right before I joined the program, um, I ended up having sort of a life-altering experience where um, I went on vacation <laughs> to Sri Lanka, which is a country that I adore, that I had been to before, um, just sort of to have a moment of meditation. And um, instead, what happened is uh, the tsunami hit while I was like sleeping on a beach in Unawatuna, Sri Lanka. And so I ended up being part of the uh, relief efforts just for being there, just for having survived. Um, and so I ended up organizing from a distance um, relief efforts and helping um, from the ground. And then when I got back to the States, it sort of, I realized how much that experience had really changed the way I thought about the world. And I realized that all the tools that I was like interested in learning and all the tools that I already had learned through art school were actually super applicable towards these larger sort of societal challenges. Um, and so I really wanted to kind of pivot from making things that talked about certain topics to making things that actually try to move the needle in some kind of way in these and larger issues. What was that experience like? I mean, being there during the tsunami, I can't really imagine as <laughs> somebody who's never been through something like that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it you know, things move really fast. And so you have a lot of time to process after. And so, you know, adrenaline is what drives you for, you know, um, a number of days, which is what allowed me to kind of really spring into action and sort of not dwell on the situation, but decide to be useful. And at the same time, I got to see sort of the best of humanity and the worst of humanity all in the same place. And, you know, people taking advantage of the situation, people that actually wanted to help. And so that really woke me up in a deeper understanding of like how we actually function as humans and what drives us. And so, um, so I really wanted to kind of investigate some of those things further when I went back to school. And and so I think my time in grad school is where I sort of started to move away and still created a number of like artistic pieces around that experience, just more for myself and my self-healing and wanting to kind of share that experience through multimedia, very similarly to the work that I was doing before, but also starting to think about, you know, who can I work with and how do I get more involved with the humanitarian side of things and with like organizations that are working in that space? And can I lend a hand with the skills that I have? Were there uh, moments in that experience that you noticed that things would be different if there were certain technologies involved? I mean, I know that's what you do now. Was was that in your mind at the time or was it just such a chaotic experience? I think it was a very chaotic experience then. I think I still do... Um, some work now around disaster specifically, it's definitely something that's stuck with me and it's kind of become this this driving force. And so anytime, you know, there's a hurricane or, or a specific climate change event or other communities are affected, I sort of want to be there and I or I want to participate. And so now not being directly involved in the kind of aftermath, when I go and I see the situation, technology come to mind right away. Like after Hurricane Maria um, and, you know, the Caribbeans in, in on the island of Dominica, there was no mean of communication for people that showed up, even from all the different agencies. Um, and so there's definitely kind of like low-hanging fruit of, you know, solutions that could 
very well leveraged technologies. At the time, I think I was so impacted on an emotional kind of level that the way I really looked at that experience um, was through a more personal lens. And and I noticed that you're really into open source cellular networks now. <laughs> yeah, that was. And you even teach a class about open source cellular networks. Yeah. Uh, how does that how does that work? What is an open source cellular network for those of people who don't know what that is? Yeah, so I went on this like interesting rabbit hole um, around I think it was like 2011. Um, I started researching. So the majority of the solutions or projects that I ended up making for the humanitarian sector or for clients um, was always these kind of Internet of Things devices that would, you know, send some type of environmental data or some types of information and send it wirelessly through, you know, to a centralized repository. That's literally like kind of 99% of the things that I made, always kind of leveraging open source technologies, because I always wanted it to be something that people could take and adapt and actually make their own and make with whatever things were actually locally sourceable. Um, But they all communicated some type of information. And again, this was, you know, I, I it makes me feel old, but this was before Internet of Things was called Internet of Things. And and because of the kind of rural environments that I worked in, none of them actually had to work over the Internet because there was no um, actual proper network. And so I ended up using cell networks for the majority of those projects to the point that then the question came, if I show up somewhere and there's no cell phone network, how do I get this data out? Right. And so I started researching and there was a lot of really interesting groups out of Berkeley and out of other universities doing open source packages uh, to basically use like software defined radios. And so radios that you can control via software um, to make them become a cellular, like a cellular network. Hmm. And so looking at the hardware and looking at the software and kind of doing some cost estimates even early on, you could jumpstart your own network for much cheaper than, you know, it would cost you to actually bring in some type of permanent infrastructure or, you know, or actually bring the grid to some of these locations. What's, so, yeah, what's cheaper? Like, <laughs> So it depends. I, I mean, I think the prices, you know, again, the technology has been like evolving. So, you know, at the time it was anywhere between like $5,000 and $10,000 wow. and you could cover like, you know, a decent area. And then if you just got better antennas, then you could cover more. And so so I went down this rabbit hole and I, I wanted to kind of have that as a demonstration or as a unit that I could bring to the clients that I was working with to say, and if you get cut out of the network for some reason, or if the telecommunication companies are trying to like rob you, you know, there's always alternatives. There's always ways you can kind of run your own um, stealth infrastructure. Yeah. Um, and so then it became a class because I really wanted to see, you know, I really wanted to empower students to understand the infrastructure that they were using so much a little bit more in depth and really kind of get the inner workings of it and start to think about what would they do with it if they were, you know, in a much more active role than just consumers. Um, And actually, fast forward down to now, I'm doing work back in that space, but using, I feel like, what we have jumped to from cellular networks, which are still 
there's a lot of issues associated with them. There's some power consumption issues, but there's also regulations involved in different mm. countries. Um, you know, the local FCC will have a say on so what... So I can't, I can't just start my own cellular yeah, network? No, especially <laughs> not here, although I've done really? it, but, you know... What happens if you do it? Do they get a knock on your door or something? Yeah, you can get, you know, like, depending on what frequencies you're at, like AT&T, T-Mobile, like, you know, other networks could kind of sense that there's someone else and so you know you don't want to play in the same spectrum like there's no free spectrum really in the united states left like everything has been like parceled off and sold off to somebody Uh, so it's really hard maybe you know parts of alaska might be the one place where you can still find still (laughs) run your own rogue cellular network yeah uh, but now I think it's been replaced as kind of a technology, but with the same sort of idea by Wi-Fi mesh networks. And so using Wi-Fi instead as a way to create sort of a local area network, similarly mm. to how you would have done it in the past with cellular. But it's much cheaper. The hardware is available. It's a cost at this point. You know, it's it's something that is scaled to the point that you can just like buy a bunch of stuff on Amazon and like in a matter of like, you know, an hour and a half of your own little network. Hmm. Do um, your students create their own networks in the class? Yeah. So um, I'm doing a few different projects in the space. And it's um, there's, for example, there's a really interesting project that was sponsored by um, uh, New America Foundation called P&K. It's called Portable Network Kits. And it's a website. It's a package for Raspberry Pi. You download it, you buy the hardware, and bam. And now you have, you know, a full network at your mm. disposal. And so we've been using some of those units down in Dominica and trying to kind of address areas that don't have networking, especially in like indigenous territory, um, as a way for people to have a free option to communicate among each other. And your students actually go and implement these in these locations too? We haven't or you... done that yet. Yeah. It's, you know, it's a system that I'm, you know, I have this pipe dream at some point to really create a class that then has a second component that actually takes people into the field. And so in the time being, we've been focusing more on like US-based applications, like with the students specifically. And so one project that I've been involved with for a few years now um, in partnership with the Red Hook Initiative has been around, they have a Wi-Fi mesh network in Red Hook that kind of came out of um, Hurricane Sandy. And so I've been working with my collaborator, David, on like solar powering that system so that it's actually resilient. Mm. And so in the case of an emergency, if the grid goes down, you can at least have this network to kind of rely on. Is it possible to, I mean, from an art perspective here, you know, my weird mind, (laughs) is it possible to jam people's cell phones legally? Yeah, yeah, not legally. Not legally. No, that, that's that, that's the term. That I just you... wish that, you know, every time I go to a movie, I'm like, I wish that these seats had like cell phone jammers in them so that yes. nobody could <laughs> be yes. on their phones. And there's a lot of really interesting work done around like kind of hijacking uh, cell phone networks, uh, like Julian Oliver mm-hmm. uh, did some really interesting pieces. Do you encourage uh, that in your class, or is it? Are you going to get in trouble as a teacher? I don't. For teaching like, this I feel thing? like I always have to give some type of disclaimer. I'll yeah. please don't get arrested because I don't have the money to bail you out. <laughs> um, but then, you know, don't ask. Don't how, how does it work when you are working with a foreign country? Like, are you proposing this idea and then going to implement it, or doing research, or do you work with an organization that hooks you up with a different country, or how does it? How does that relationship come to be? Yeah, so these, I think, you know, in general, like anything that's like at the sort of social level, I think it's a a pretty heavy collaboration among like different 
partners and different stakeholders. So, in you know, I've worked in, on projects in different capacities. Somewhere, you know, an organization like UNICEF might have had an idea for something that they've been thinking about for a long time based on their experience in the field and just kind of needed to see a prototype of something that they wanted to see come to light. Um, there's also other way in which basically I've just come in on as a consultant and just executed that thing and then like gone into the field to actually test it and write kind of a report. And I've really kind of used that um, as a way to actually research and do field research because it's it's really hard to convince somebody to actually just send you somewhere to like figure out what the problem actually is. And so you have to become creative um, with that. Um, and so there's ways in which I've kind of been pulled in after people have done a lot of the thinking and then other projects that have sort of started from the grounds up through conversations with, you know, maybe a water and sanitation expert and like somebody in academia and like a community-based organization. And then sort of through a process of co-design and like participatory brainstorming, we kind of came up with something to pilot and try. And so I think it depends on the type of project and also depends on you know, the funding source and which organization is really trying to move this mission forward. The things that I enjoy the most are when, like, I'm partnering with a community-based organization and it's really about um, understanding their needs better and empowering them to 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 create whatever solution or whatever intervention that's useful to them. Can you think of a specific example where you worked with a community and an organization together? Um, so I think, you know, for example, the work with uh, the Red Hook Initiative has been really, uh, really interesting. Um, I think I've worked um, a couple of years ago. I spent some time kind of just like from the ground up researching community health in New York and just community health organizations in general in the United States, because I think they feel a really big void in the like health system mm -hmm. that we have. And they have you know, so many challenges at hand um, that I think, you know, this type of collaborative effort is really needed in that space. Um, then I spent some time very similarly, um, you know, in partnership with like Wild Cornell and Cornell Tech and kind of different level of expertise looking at home care workers, which is a, you know, huge part of our workforce and um, and seeing what technology can actually help, you know, how it can help them do their job better. Um, and so, those are the kind of interesting projects that are very open-ended and just sort of start by getting to know a community and then seeing, you know, what can be done in partnership with them. How do you introduce technology in that kind of relationship, though? I mean, if you're studying this group of people, d does it come to your mind suddenly like, oh, this would help people? Or is, does it come from conversations? Or how yeah. does that come about? I try not to... I try not to jump to any type of, because I think we tend a lot, especially through things like design thinking or like other sort of methodologies, where we're sort of very tempted to to do a lot of solutionism and a lot of just like, I think an app can fix this for right. you, you know, <laughs> and that's sort of the type of stuff that makes me cringe. And so I very much work in understanding what people's current practices are, what they perceive as you know, pain points and challenges in their own space. And I really try to craft like creative activities um, and research methods 
for people to generate their own ideas and for people to kind of, if if it is technology, and they'll, you know, if, if they're familiar with technology in general, I mean, everybody, almost everybody now has a smartphone. Like, there's a plenty of things that they're exposed to that they'll, like, automatically kind of mention. You know, it's actually hard sometimes, especially with the, for example, the um, the home care worker group, because of the health spaces riddled with so much technology and so many different devices and different companies that built software for it. It's a very fragmented and super saturated landscape. They automatically, the second you talk to them about a problem, they'll jump to a technology solution. Mm. They'll be the first people to say, maybe we should make an app and like, this is what the app should have, you know, which is great. Like if it comes directly from them and then it's a process of kind of figure, you know, co-designing with them and, and just, helping them and assisting them in providing whatever expertise or services they might not have to make the thing that they see as a solution actually like come to prototype. And what's the time frame from when you start prototyping something like this to when it actually gets released or produced in the world? It depends, but it's a really long time. I mean, there are certain like projects in international contacts that I've been a part of that started in 2011, and they're still nowhere near, you know, full deployments um, because of various factor, including like political turmoil mm. and like funding sources and whatnot. Um, there's also projects that have gone from like initial kind of research to infill prototype in three months because that was just the time frame that we had available. And so that's where you um, things with communities, um, you know, I, I think anywhere between like three, six months to a couple of years, I think it's like a reasonable time frame because you want to go through a bunch of prototypes and actual like iterations and you want to be diligent, which is a, a, an issue, I think, with this whole space in general. You want to be diligent in the way you like monitor and evaluate the things that you're actually developing and and so that you actually have some measures of understanding whether or not that thing was successful and whether or not it can help. Um, and so I think there's a lot of difficulty uh in general, for people to kind of have that as part of their, like, project development path. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you think of a time where technology was introduced, maybe not by you, but by someone else that you saw, and you thought it was totally unsuccessful in the way that it was was brought into the field? Oh, yeah. I think there's plenty. I I mean, I think I'm super opinionated. So, uh, you know, and I think there's, like, entire blogs about, especially in the humanitarian sector, there has been so many misguided... Um, and just very naive uh, interventions, in my opinion. Um, and I'm sure I'll, I won't make friends right now. But uh, One Laptop Per Child is my absolute, like, you know, most famous example mm-hmm. of what not to do in the space. Um, and why is that? So, I mean, I think there's a number of issues. And I think a bunch of people can talk about different perspectives. But, again, generally speaking, it was was very much like throwing at technology without a deep understanding of the actual like socio-economical, like cultural context in which these things were getting introduced. Um, I think some of it also, in my opinion, kind of goes back to um, thinking about STEM as a very sort of decontextualized 
set of skills and tools. And it's my beef with just how, you know, just how STEM is done pretty much everywhere. Right. Um, yeah, just learn tech. That's all you need to do. Just learn how to <laughs> code. Save, and, it'll and, save everything. And you'll be a better human <laughs> um, and you'll save the planet. And so, yeah, so I think there's, you know, issues with that. There's, you know, Play Pump was another horrible example that, you know, through play, um, and a merry-go-round, you were supposed to help pump water, but it's, you know, again, it's it's a very thin line to, like, you know, um, actual, like, child abuse and, and like... Right, you just have to keep playing, right? Yeah, in <laughs> order no for you to play. have a life right. resource. Right, disturbing. Um, and so there's a few, you know, there's a few of those examples that, again, like... Probably started with a really good intention, but the research part of it, I think, was, you know, was was not substantial enough to really understand, like, what you could actually do about this Do you think problems. people just get sort of obsessed with the idea? Like, they think, oh, this would be a really cool idea. Let's let's implement it without actually doing enough user research or... I think there's definitely some fan- just some fascination with the technology. And also, I think... Just of generally speaking, I think a lack of understanding of the system that's in place and really understanding the complexity of the dynamics, right? And I think we, we as a you know as a species, maybe now very much like to address whatever the manifestation of a problem is and really sort of jump at whatever the alarming aspect of it that we can perceive without spending the time to really uncover. What are the like deep rooted causes of whatever it is that we see? And so understanding systems and understanding in what part of the system you should actually intervene on in order to get the type of impact that you're hoping. I think it's still something that's not, you know, necessarily taught. And so I think we, you know, we teach technology. I think we teach design. I think we teach, but but putting all these things together so that you actually have a more holistic understanding of the spaces you want to intervene in is is necessary to then know what you can actually make. So maybe you could walk me through like one specific project that you've worked on, like uh, maybe Device X, uh, which well, I did so, some research on before. <laughs> yeah, well, so Device X is actually a really good example of of um, a lot of things that didn't happen the way that now I would do things. Mm -hmm. Um, It was my very first um, sort of experience in the space of of designing for humanitarian client. It was a partnership with UNICEF Office of Innovation. And um, this is an example of an idea that UNICEF had uh, based on working in, you know, uh, different community health clinics and sort of uh, looking at a, a, a array of problems. And one of the things that they were focusing on specifically was severe acute malnutrition in children under five years old and figuring out, you know, better ways to help um, basically community health workers, you know, in a lot of cases are not doctors, they're not medically trained, but they're the ones that are doing, you know, the actual majority of the diagnosing and the actual like, um, you know, assisting of patients. And so um, it was aimed at trying to figure out how to like make their process better and how to help them do their job more efficiently. Um, one of the issues with a lot of these processes, and not just in poor, you know, in, in poor countries, but 
anywhere you can find inefficiencies in terms of processes. A lot of it was paper-based. And so they were just filling out a lot of forms that would just sit in a physical space for months at a time. And like nobody would digitize them for months. And then, you know, if you're talking about a health crisis in a matter of six months to a year, then that thing has, you know, scaled to a much, you know, a much larger problem. And so they wanted something that would help do diagnosis in real time. Um, we didn't have um, time for research because it was really hard to kind of convince them to just pay us to go to the field and observe. Um, and so what we did is we took their prompts and we took the prototype that they wanted to see happen as really more of they thought it was a prototype for a solution. I learned it was a prototype. It was a probe. It was actually a way to show up in the field with something, with a physical device that they could rip apart, that they could actually like talk about and use as a way to really think about what it is that they actually really wanted to see happen. What hmm. is the, you know, what part of the problem were we actually not addressing that it was much more on the minds of community health worker than what we were coming at with. And I only learned it kind of the hard way because Obviously, in three months, we made these devices. I had managed to try and cram in as much research as I possibly could by talking to any health expert that I had access to, talked to a bunch of people at the UN and sort of people that had had that field experience that I was lacking at the time. Um, and so we created these you know, prototypes in three months that were field ready. But really, the research started when we showed up. Mm. And of course, these devices were going to fail. There was no way in which these devices were going to, like, at all help, uh, you know. And so... What but was I, the physical device? So it was, like, the very first one was made with, like, $400 worth of, like, off-shelf parts. And I don't know why I ended up looking like this, like, Soviet telephone <laughs> uh, that we painted, like, UNICEF blue, yeah. uh, which is still in the offices of the Office of Innovation. So it's, like, really nice to see. Um, but then we kind of iterated on the design based on feedback. And, and we kind of, you know, and some recommendations from people in the field, what type of keyboard to put in there, how big the keys should be, what type of display. But again, those are, you know, like, you know, now I can look back and think those were details. Those were like absolutely not important details. Um, but showing up with a thing allowed them to be really open with their feedback and really say what parts of it they could see being actually like a potential solution, what parts of it they didn't like. And that allowed them to also talk a little bit more openly about their work processes, what part of their job they had difficulty with, what mm. frustrations they had, which... And that's just, well, just the introduction of this device, just yeah. because you had like a physical object. Just because this physical object was there, was tangible, was something that they kind of thought might be coming. And so they, People you know, it prompted it. Yeah. them to like, you know, give feedback on it. Like, what would they want to see change? What would they keep? Um, and I found it's it's super, again, if you're not attached to the prototype um, and you don't actually like, you know, you, you don't have ego involved in this process. It really allows for a much more in-depth conversation um, than if I had, you know, even six months prior, if I had showed up with nothing and just started interviewing people, I don't think I would have gotten the same level of openness. I don't think anybody would have told me, oh, I hate this part of my job because they would have been scared to get fired or like just, you know, social norm is not to talk about, you know, how much you hate your job. And so all these dynamics kind of like um, 
got disrupted by showing up with a thing and being like, talk about this thing. But that was really just a probe to talk about themselves. Huh. So it's it's so funny. <laughs> why, why did you call it Device X? It seems like a very uh, foreboding name. <laughs> I am for horrible to have. at naming projects. Yeah. <laughs> so I should never be allowed to name anything. I just didn't know what to name it because this thing was so like kind of, I knew what it was supposed to do, but it was very prescriptive. It was very much like, you know, UNICEF was like, it needs to run on re- rechargeable batteries. It needs to have this, it needs to have that. So it kind of felt like it was like somebody just had given me like a recipe to follow. And so I didn't know what this thing was going to like turn into or become. And and as a matter of fact, when I left, my recommendation was something completely different um, than that device uh, based on the feedback that I got. And so, yeah, so I did. I don't know how to name things. I'm horrible. I'm not good at branding. And so we just called it Device X and then it just stuck around forever. <laughs> just something funny to me about, OK, tom- tomorrow we're getting Device X and everyone's like, OK, now it's going to open us up for these conversations. So I'd <laughs> be like, I'm afraid of Device yeah, X. No, Get it away yeah, from me. Well, how wouldn't you be afraid yeah. of device X? Yeah, I don't think I ever told anybody in the field that that was actually its name. I kind of felt like it was like a placeholder. But then like, again, then that specific device didn't really have a place at the time, the way it was conceived. And so it just never got a better name because it never moved on. So, And more recently, you founded T4D Lab. Uh, can you tell us a little about what T4D Lab does? Yeah, so, um, you know, kind of organically through the years, I ended up like collaborating with people that were very interested also in working in the social space. And I think now it's much more viable <laughs> as a business venture than it was, you know, 10 years ago um, or 11 years ago when I started. Um, and so it was born out of a collaboration with other people interested in working, again, with technologies and levering technologies and design for, you know, tackling these, you know, climate change issues or, you know, other sort of social problems. And so um, ST4D, there's a lot of work that we do around networking and around access to electricity and basically just access to resources wherever those resources are needed. And so some part of the work is outside of the U.S., but then there's plenty of work that we do here at home, including work with the Red Oak Initiative was part of it. And it was part of... um, uh, a project called, and it was an, a, an initiative by the NYCDC um, called uh, Rise NYC, which was meant to kind of allocate funds to 10, 11 different projects in the city that were specifically aimed at helping neighborhoods that had been affected by Hurricane Sandy um, be better prepared for the next climate change event. And so we partnered with the Red Oak Initiative, which was heavily affected and heavily active in Red Oak at the time, um, towards this idea of making a more resilient um, Wi-Fi network that would be available to provide information and content to people. Um, and so there's plenty of opportunities like here at home, but then also very similar challenges happen again in, for example, in like island nations post hurricanes. And so a lot of the technology is kind of the same. And so we use a lot of like open source hardware, a lot of like open networking protocols, as well as solar and different renewable energies to kind of make solutions that are resilient. Are tech companies getting behind some of this stuff too? Like, do they fund this kind of research or is it like not sexy enough for them sometimes? Like, do they want more of a product to show off? Yeah, I think I've seen so, especially like funny enough in the sort of the cellular world, like I've seen that transition happen where, 
you know, I started as a very much like kind of like an academic research project to do like this open source packages and open source hardware for cell phones, for for cellular networks. And then um, they ended up starting a company and then Facebook bought them. Right. Because there is interest from these larger giants to kind of have some foot in that space. Mm. Um, Why do you think that is? Well, I think because, you know, the the threats are real, meaning like we, you know, the, there are challenges, there are problems that we're all aware of. Um, and in a lot of ways, they have the capacity to support these projects or to develop technologies. I don't actually think they do half as much as they should, which I'm partially glad about just because I think, again, um, there is a level of kind of distrust, I think, that's innate in those relationships. And so I, I'm much more for a like grassroots sort of approach and for like, again, communities to kind of decide what type of tech they need, what type of services they need and how to craft them from the bottom up. And Rather so, than like a tech company just telling you what they're going to give you. Yeah, that's, that's... based on their, you know, their interest. And a lot of it, it's, you know, at the end of the day, they want you to use their services and they want to like harvest your data. And there's a, a lot of like ethical implications in that. And so it's it's a lot less, you know, happy of a, of a, of a scene when you paint it. It correctly. And so so I'm much more for, you know, if if they can support actually like local groups that are doing really interesting stuff, that's a much better use of their resources, in my opinion. And recently you've been working with blockchain. You taught a class uh, in about blockchain. What, is, what are your students doing with blockchain? Um, yeah, so that was a really fun experiment. Again, like I've had this relationship now with UNICEF for like over a decade. And um, every couple of years we come up with some crazy class <laughs> um, uh, with some interesting prompts for students to kind of play around in the space of these real real challenges. But out of a few versions of the class, what we kind of decided to do is focus in more on actually helping students assess, right? There's there's emerging technologies like coming out all the time and they're super hyped and super hoped and, you know, um, hypersold. And so there's so much myth around what they actually can do. And and I feel like there was nothing more hyped than blockchain. Yeah, and oh I yeah. mean, like blockchain. Nobody knows them, what it is. Nobody knows part. what it is, but everybody <laughs> knows it can solve everything. Yeah. It can be used for everything, although pretty much everybody is using it as like a glorified database. So, um, so yeah, so we wanted to kind of tackle that and have a way for students to get part understanding of what the actual technology is, which funny enough, I think it's actually really simple of a concept once somebody really kind of walks you through it and also a very powerful concept. And so, um, and so we wanted students to kind of understand the technology landscape a little bit more and kind of be informed consumers and, and informed designers that will leave knowing this is what blockchain is good for, this is what blockchain is not good for, um, and also spot kind of some of the like you know, the fakes out there, some of the like BS <laughs> that that navigates uh, through the internet. And then we also wanted them to kind of apply um, design methods towards understanding sort of the social aspect and of the challenges that UNICEF was, um, was working on. And UNICEF has been 
really interested in blockchain for some time now. They have a, a blockchain team. Um, that what are is, they doing with blockchain at Unisa? They have actually invested in a number of companies um, in different parts of the world that are leveraging blockchain um, to, you know, address a wide range of problems from connectivity to keeping track of teachers or helping schools um, to, like, you know, shared resources. There's there's a number of really interesting applications in the social sector that they've been sort of trying to invest in to see what actually happens. Um, they actually just recently launched like a, a crypto fund. And so they're actually going to be accepting donations in cryptocurrency. Um, and so because of the amount of work that they had already kind of laid out in that space, we thought it was a really good place to bring students in kind of in a sandbox, but in an environment that was developed enough where they didn't have to like go out and try to find a problem. There was plenty of things that like UNICEF was actively working on that they could sort of use um, as part of their you know, process of understanding how then this technology can come into that space and whether or not it can do anything for them. And so some people worked on projects that UNICEF already had ongoing. So, for example, one initiative that they have is to connect every school to the Internet and using blockchain as a way to keep, um, you know, the networking companies accountable for the network that they're providing, whether or not they go offline, and also to allow then, you know, governments to sort of uh, more easily allocate funds to mm. different communities and uh, different neighborhoods and different areas. Um, and so some students kind of worked uh, around that space. Um, and then um, we had students like take it kind of more like more closely to home and really talk about using blockchain as a way to monetize your data and to really sell your data how you want it to who you wanted. Um, and so there was an array of really interesting applications. Um, and so it was a really fun class um, and it was it was co-taught uh, with a number of us again because it's a kind of a group effort. Um, and we're thinking about piloting um, a similar version of the class before high school students this summer oh, great. Um, as part of like NYU's like summer offerings for high school. And so as a former artist uh, who's now dealing with real world problems, maybe, uh, do you ever think about how to advise people who are making interactive pieces? You know, like you've done so much uh, community research. How would you tell an interactive artist to apply these same sort of research methodologies to their work so that they can make work that isn't damaging or isn't boring or, you know, can actually engage someone? I think that like, so I, you know, I teach some classes around like ideation and prototyping and I teach some classes around just like people developing their own projects. And so I get a wide range, obviously, like anybody who's doing community based or social impact projects, like it's my bread and butter. Um, people that are coming in with like much more creative, like artistic expressions, I first sort of doubt myself or like, can I help this person? But the process is honestly the same. And so I think there's an amount of like balancing all of these things of like making but but also researching and understanding the impact of the things that you want to make. So I think there's like a basic level of like empathizing with people, understanding, you know, humans' behavior and kind of mental models, as well as ethics that needs to come with whatever it is that you're making in this world. And so, um, you know, 
I have people working with tarots. I have people working with, you know, all sorts of different creative materials. And I have somebody working on like a true crime type project. Um, but I think the process of like, how do you actually conduct research in that space is is very similar. Um, you know, there's an amount of just like looking at what other people have done and, and how other people have sort of approached the same topic or theme and, and what you can learn from them and how can you build off of that. But I think all of it comes into like, especially for art, like, you know, it might feel like it's a very sort of independent effort and very sort of self-centered effort, but you're inserting that piece and you're inserting yourself in a much larger discourse. And so you have to be aware of what that conversation is in order to participate in it in some kind of way. Yeah, it's always a struggle with making interactive work because you want to, you don't want to make a piece for everyone necessarily, right? When you're making an artwork, it doesn't have to be like the most functional piece, let's say. But you also don't want to make something that's completely inaccessible <laughs> to everybody and they have no idea that you can even interact with it in any way, right? Yeah. So how do you – I mean, how do you teach somebody something like that? I mean, how do you teach someone in terms of your research to to learn that? Well, I think a lot of it is engaging with people like early on, right? So I think it's hard for – especially for art because – well, it's actually hard – on the engineering side of things, too, because on the engineering side, I think the practice has always been I'm going to make this thing in my silo, in my lab, and it's not ready for prime time or for anybody to provide any sort of input until it's done. Right. And so there's a lot of disruption that needs to happen with that model, which I think it's happening. And I think the art space is still kind of, you know, anchored to that to some extent where people are like, I'm going to create this thing. It's my vision. It's what I'm thinking I want to do. But then if nobody gets it and nobody knows, especially an interactive piece. Like there's some basic understanding of like human computer interaction that like you need to know about in order to like make things understandable for people, understand what people need to touch or what's going to happen if they step there. Or, like, And so I think that comes with testing that comes with making lo-fi prototypes or or any type of kind of visual representation of this thing that you're thinking about to just get a little bit deeper into the minds of the people that are kind of and it's fine if it's not for everybody it shouldn't be for everybody that's impossible to design for something yeah i mean not impossible i shouldn't say that but you know i think we're we're not you know it's 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 not something that people should necessarily like start with um and so but I think that having conversations early on with, you know, potential users or visitors of your exhibit, it's really important to understand how to actually make things that are going to sort of hit the mark. Right. Yeah. So you're not making it in a cave by yourself anymore as an artist who works with interactive technology. Do you still make your own work? Your own artwork, I should say? I Clearly, you make your own other work, but... I don't, but I'm thinking a lot about it. And so I have this like crazy running list of like half-baked, like artistic pursuits. Um, and so like more recently, I'm working on a project that's a little bit between like the social and art space. And it's like a solar powered server and a mm. solar powered website. And so I'm kind of intrigued by using limitations of solar and thinking about like the intermittency of resources as a quality and not as like um, a problem, not as like a, you know, and so figuring out how to use these limitations to then make something that really takes advantage of that property and maybe like actually 
turns it into something useful. And so I think there's plenty of like creative pursuits there. Um, and then I have a, a whole other set of very random ideas that I would love to collaborate with people on because I don't want to be in my cave making these things by myself, especially when I haven't really been part of the artistic discourse in so long. So yeah, there's a number of art projects and people that make speculative art projects these days. Does that piss you off? <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't piss me off. I, I feel very uncomfortable with speculative. Um, so, for example, I teach this class called um, uh, Ideation and Prototyping. And one of the assignments that was originally in there was a speculative assignment. And I just don't think speculative. I have this problem in, in a way. I don't know what it is. I don't know if I'm just, like, too practical or, or what. Um, and so I sort of had to ditch the assignment because I felt like I would have been the worst person to, like, guide somebody through the process. Um, and then if somebody wants to do speculative, it's totally fine. Um, I'm much more comfortable with critical design, right, which is sometimes can be similar. And so what's the difference between speculative and critical in your mind? I mean, it, it depends. Like, um, I think speculative is is really kind of about the future that you want to see happen um, or like, you know, dystopian, the future that you don't want to see happen. Um Critical design, I think it's it's more broad in the sense that I think it talks about a whole wide range of topics. And it could be, you know, things that are like happening right now, this moment, and really make you think critically about how that is affecting you today or how that specific object or that specific technology or that specific, you know, system is currently impacting you in a way that you might have not thought about before. So more about the present than the future. I think so. But I mean, this might be my mm -hmm. personal interpretation. So I might be very ignorant. Again, like, I, you know, my work is very much about this thing is happening now. Let's figure out something now. But I also do, I am learning more and more how to take the speculative approach, especially like in the partnerships with UNICEF. I learned a lot about that of like figuring out what can we plant the seed for today that might not actually come to life until like three, five years from now when some of these things are matured or when some of these technologies are actually like ready for prime time. And so I think there is a little bit more of speculation that's coming into my work in that sense. Um, but no, I think, you know, I, it doesn't piss me off like speculative art. It's just something that like it's very different from the way that I think about things. Yeah, Like I, I, I have this sense of urgency of like really addressing things that are here today. Right. You want to fix a current problem. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Before we go, Benedetta, we always have some rapid fire questions here at the end. <laughs> so it's really just the first things that pop into your mind. So don't overthink oh it too much. Oh, my God. Um, what is your favorite place to visit in the world? Sri Lanka. I guess it's pretty self-explanatory. Yeah. I mean, yes. What's the one app on your phone that you use the most? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think what's up? <laughs> to communicate with people? Yeah. I think like, <laughs> On the down low, like all over the world? <laughs> to chat with people. I'm trying to make a move to Signal, but it's yeah. just not, it's not happening. <laughs> you just make your own network and then you don't even I need know. WhatsApp. I know. Make your own app. Um, here's a random question. Do you believe in ghosts? Yeah, I do. <laughs> Have you encountered a ghost before? Yes, I think so. Yeah. Sounds really weird when I say it aloud. But yeah, I think somebody sat on my bed once. Really? Like yeah. in the middle of the night, you just woke up and yeah. there was a ghost there. Yep. <laughs> all right. Well, Benedetta <laughs> believes in ghosts. That's the most important thing we're getting out of this podcast today. No, not at all. Thank you so much for being a guest. Um, where can people find your work online? 
Uh, well, that's a really good question, actually. So I think LinkedIn is the first place to connect mm. with me, unfortunately. And then in the next couple of months, I'm going to be finally redoing all of my personal uh, websites. And so there'll be all of my academic work, all of my classes, as well as all of my actual like projects on the side. Great. Well, thank you, Benedetta. Benedetta Piantella, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Uh, next week, we're actually going to be off for Thanksgiving, so uh, I won't be happy around. Happy Thanksgiving. Yeah, happy Thanksgiving. This is our Thanksgiving episode. Uh, <laughs> that could be our last rapid-fire question is like, what do you want to be thankful for? My family. Yeah. Is that too cheesy? No, that's that's <laughs> probably very heartfelt and, and uh, true. Uh, I'm thankful for all the podcast listeners. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so stay tuned uh, after Thanksgiving we'll be back with another guest uh, as always I'm not going to tell you who it is but I promise it'll be very exciting uh, for State of the Art this is Gabe BC and I'll talk to you soon have a great Thanksgiving thanks so much for listening today uh, this is Gabe Garcia Colombo for the State of the Art podcast uh, State of the Art is actually created by Ethan Appleby uh, we have a great fantastic producer named Vanessa Wilson uh, and our audio specialist slash miracle waveform master is Weston Stevens. Uh, so stay tuned for next week. Uh, we're going to have another amazing guest. I'm not going to tell you who it is quite yet, but I promise it will be worth it. Bye.